0: Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM
1: HD2. Just how much cash is President Trump really willing to spend on his re-election effort? $100 million? I'll give you the latest on 2020. Plus escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. What you need to know and where this storm is headed. We are going to give you all of the latest, all of the latest on the skinny bill. That Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, says that he uh, is is working on next week, plus, of course, on 2020. But we begin tonight with a geopolitical story mounting tensions, mounting tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, the president has vowed yesterday to sharply scale back U.S. and China economic ties. Decoupling is the word that you're going to be hearing a lot more of, especially as top administration level officials, even some cabinet level officials, have begun to use fiery rhetoric in their speeches, particularly about the alleged mis- uh, the alleged abuses of human rights uh, for uh, Uyghur minority uh, Uyghur Muslims in uh, the Xinjiang region. Of China. The US has barred some China Xinjiang firms citing that alleged Uyghur abuse. Tom Orlik is my first guest. He literally wrote the burp the, the book, China, The Bubble That Never Pops. He is Bloomberg economics chief economist and of course the author of the book, China, The Bubble That Never Pops. Tom, it 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 felt like over the the holiday weekend, Labor Day weekend, the escalations rhetorically. And to some extent, the supply chain, it escalated. It turned a new corner. Am I wrong or or no?
5: I think certainly escalation is the right word, Kevin. Um, and as we head towards November, uh, especially with the virus story and the domestic economy story uh, not working out so great for the uh, for the Trump administration, uh, I think there's going to be a political incentive there um, to continue ratcheting up the pressure on China uh, and try and make that into a kind of dividing line issue uh, as Americans approach the, uh, the polls at the beginning of November.
1: And you know, it's interesting, Tom, and you know this better than anyone, typically in the lead up till an election geopolitics takes a back seat but this election it seems that there's more of an incentive on behalf of president trump to 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 try to do things as it relates to china in addition to the rhetoric Uh, that that's a that's a nuance i think that we're seeing now that we might have to hear from uh from biden world on yeah, I
5: think that's an important differentiator, Kevin. Uh, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's something which the Trump campaign talks about, right? So it's not uncommon for uh, presidential campaigns to talk tough about China. Uh, Clinton, Bush Jr., Obama, Romney, they all talk tough about about China. But once they get into office, The policy becomes much more nuanced, much more balanced. There's a concern to protect the interests of of US companies in China, for example. Um, The Trump administration has clearly been different. They've imposed tariffs on um, billions of dollars' worth of goods. They've imposed sanctions on tech companies. Uh, As you've reported, Kevin, um, they've now imposed uh, sanctions on some companies operating out of Xinjiang, uh, up in the northwest of China. Um, So there's really a clear differentiation between the Trump administration and past administrations on China policy. Uh, Of course, Biden was part of past administrations. um, So... My expectation is the the Trump team are going to try and draw a kind of a bright line between the two sides on the China issue.
1: David DeFiori is going to join us in the next hour, and we'll we'll continue this conversation. But as you just mentioned, uh, over the weekend in in talking with administration sources, uh, the Department of of Homeland Security has now gotten into this U.S.-China escalation, and they're using a tool— That was previously little used, but now they're going to be using it quite frequently. It's called withholding release orders, W-R-O's in the wonk world, as it's called. Withholding release orders, and they are essentially blocking or banning the imports from three companies in Xinjiang region of China over Beijing's alleged repression of the Uyghur Muslim minority group and they're planning to add curbs on six more firms. Now, cotton is a massive massive export for Xinjiang and 80% of China's exports of cotton come from the Xinjiang region and 30% of America's imports of of clothing come from China, this according uh, to various think tanks here in in town. So they're going after textiles. They're targeting hair extensions. They're actually considering targeting a chip maker in this uh, region that is the chip for a lot of the inexpensive laptops that schools are using. And if you've been following the reports of the backlog of laptops uh, and tomatoes. So it's, it's, it's sprinkled. Is this just a foreshadowing Tom Orlick? of what potentially could come, should they, say, start to target chips? I don't know, in in other parts of the supply chain? Maybe they're headquartered in Taiwan, but they've got some uh, plants uh, in the mainland.
5: So you can do this broad or you can do this narrow, uh, Kevin. Um, Think about the, the ban on WeChat that we had a few weeks ago. Now, there was a broad way of doing that, to say, all right, U.S. companies, you can't use WeChat anymore. And that would have ended up being a disaster for everyone from Apple to McDonald's to Starbucks who do business in China, where WeChat is kind of almost just like cash in terms of its ubiquity. Um, Or there's a narrow way of doing this and say, yeah, we're not actually going to take aim at the big things which matter for the bottom line for U.S. corporations. Um, So I think we could see that playing out with the cotton thing, right? So there's a broad way of doing it where you say, okay, we're going to track all the cotton coming from Xinjiang, and we don't care if it goes direct to the U.S. or it goes to a factory and then goes to Vietnam and then comes to the U.S. We don't want it. And that's the sort of thing which would really hit the fashion industry, hit the retail industry, and and have a broader impact on the global economy. Um, Or there's a narrow way of doing it and saying... Uh, yeah, we're just going to look at this particular company and we're not going to track things very closely. It's contact um, tracing. So I, suspect, I suspect it's going to be the narrow approach, Kevin, because the, the US administration, they want to be tough on this. They want to differentiate between the Trump and the Biden campaigns, but they don't want to tank the stock market. They don't want to tank the economy when there's already so many troubles with COVID ahead of the election.
1: And it's so sm- I mean, what you're saying is, is is literally, folks, I mean, Tom Orlick, if you haven't paid- Picked up the new book. Read it because you'll learn something. I mean, China, the bubble that never pops. Tom Warlick, Bloomberg Economics, chief economist. You know, Tom, I mean, what you're talking about? We, we talk about contact tracing as if it's just, oh, get your temperature checked before you can go back to the movies or back to the office. But contact tracing, folks, also relates to the parts in your clothes the computer chips in your laptops the where, where the, the 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 supply chain of your the comp the components of your pills and there's actually technology that's able to track whether or not the US was to in, uh, in, introduce a ban but the Xinjiang province just goes through I don't know South America Latin America there's actually technology that would allow for the US to detect the contact tracing of the materials and the components of these Good. It's getting incredibly interesting, it's incredibly nuanced, and that's why I'm so incredibly grateful to kick off today's show with Tom Orlick, Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist, and um and, of course, the author of China, The Bubble That Never Pops. Coming up, we're pivoting to the markets. Trevor Hanger, strategic advisor with Forbes Tate Partners in Washington, D.C., will join us about what's going on on Wall Street. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. For all of our latest coverage on COVID-19, head over to Bloomberg.com slash coronavirus. Much more coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. It's Tuesday. It's a shortened work week. It's a beautiful day in the nation's capital. A lot to be grateful for. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
0: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. U.S. stocks sink to a four-week low. The tech route spreads. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, U.S. stocks sank for a third day, wow, with sell-off in technology shares picking up steam as investors fled the high flyers who fueled a historic five-month rally. Oil plunged while treasuries rose with the dollar. Lots of volatility, lots of uncertainty. What is going on? Welcome to the program, Trevor Hanger. Uh, Trevor is, this is the first time he is on the program. I read his note. All the time. Trevor is a strategic advisor with Forbes Tate Partners in Washington, D.C. Trevor, what happened on Wall Street today?
2: Well, thanks for having me on, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Um, It was another pretty aggressive sell-off. I mean, it's the third day in a row, as you said, coming in. Um, I would describe it as orderly but aggressive. Uh, And I think that it's not entirely unexpected. I mean, the names that led the multi-month rally on the way up. The big tech names are the ones that are leading it right back down. Uh, I think you got a lot of investors out there who are looking for reasons to sell and take some profits uh, in those bigger names. And, you know, they're getting it. They're um, they're seeing some, some opportunities to get out now. Um, they're not getting great news um, out of D.C. They're not getting great news out of Europe. They're not getting great news out of um, the U.S. relationship with China. Um, and, you know, they got some, some good to, to better than average economic data in in August, but I think uh, folks are are looking to take a take a break and taking their foot off the gas, and that's what that's what you're seeing. It's a it's a pretty normal occurrence. I just think it's happening like a lot of things in the market a lot faster and with a lot more volatility um, than you normally see.
1: So. Um uh, my colleague Jonathan Farrow on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance uh, interviewed Larry Kudlow the other, the other day and asked him whether or not this was just volatility or if it's a correction. I'm looking at some of this uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Tesla suffering the worst route in its history. And is now down 34% in September. Apple's 6.9% plunge wiped out almost $140 billion in market value on Tuesday, while its three-day slide swelled to 14%, which is the most since October 2008. So what, what do you attribute app, the, the, the um, movement from Tesla and Apple, what do you attribute that to? So,
2: yeah, I mean, technically, you know, a correction is a 10% down move. Uh, a bear move is 20%. And so you got a one-day bear move in Tesla today. That's a huge sell-off. Uh, it's It's worth remembering. I mean, these are the companies that have really led this rally higher. They've driven NASDAQ, you know, up... Um they were you know Nasdaq was up forty percent on the year until this sell off started. um They dragged the s and p positive on the year, which you know maybe it has no right to be when you think about everything that that the u s economy has gone through over the last six months uh and so you know it 's always a natural occurrence I think when um these stocks lead the way higher, and you know Tesla, even after a twenty percent down day today is probably still up. Over three hundred percent for the year, probably. Um, you know, Apple still having a huge year, even if they're giving up um, a lot of that over the last couple of days. And so, uh, realistically, I you know I think you've got a lot of um, a lot of reason to to take some profit in, in those names um, because you know maybe they were ahead of themselves, maybe they were um, you know pushed higher for you know for. Different reasons than normal, maybe it's a bigger retail push um, out of those Robin Hood names. Maybe it's this story about uh, about Softbank and about um, you know the huge NASDAQ uh, call, call bets that they were making. There are reasons why the market you know, got a little bit ahead of itself or you know fairly aggressively ahead of itself and, um, and the names that take it higher are the names that bring it back down.
1: You know, it is it is fascinating. I was having a conversation with a source earlier today just about what precisely uh, Wall Street, Main Street are really looking off of. It felt a couple of weeks ago that every. Every development was hanging on news of a vaccine and the implementation of a vaccine. Are they going to have enough syringes? Are they going to have enough glass capsules? Are they going to have enough freezers? You know, now there's a freezer shortage, apparently, um, to to (laughs) keep the, the medicine in. And then now it's the volatility pertaining to November 3rd and the election and U.S. Postal Service and, of course, China. What do you think, Trevor Hanger, what do you think of Forbes Tate is really the one issue that markets are having to decipher right now? Now and and business owners are having to decipher right now because there just seems to be a lot of uncertainty fiscal stimulus being one i didn't even mention that
2: sure so i think you know there's a difference there i think meaningfully between investors and business owners in that uh, respect true. i think yeah you know for for investors i think one of the major questions now is what continues to drive markets higher from here there's been a fair amount of money that has stayed on the sidelines that has missed this rally uh, and so for you know just like there are groups of people who are looking for excuse to sell and got them over the last three or four days, you know there are still you know investors out there who are looking for reasons to buy, and a ten percent or eleven percent correction in the Nasdaq could be that you know that excuse. And so, you know, I think if you're an investor, you're really looking for um, you know a solid foundation for why you think. Um, you know, valuations make sense where they are uh, after this big run-up in in August, Um, and and whether you think that there is enough uh, of an undercurrent in the market to keep that going. Now, obviously, you know, the Fed and and all the actions that Chairman Powell has taken taken over the the last six months, that's put a huge updraft into this market as well, and you have to believe that 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 input – You know, that that Fed put, as they call it, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, If you're a business owner, I think you have a much different conversation to have, because, you know, large swaths of the U.S. economy seem to be really struggling still. You're looking at unemployment. Even, you know, after a really strong unemployment report last Friday, you're still looking at 8.5% unemployment. You're still looking at a million new people every week filing initial jobless claims. You're still looking at 29 million Americans you know, getting unemployment benefits of one kind or another on a weekly basis. And you have to really ask yourself at a sector by sector level, uh, you know, what is it that's going to keep my business uh, mo- moving along, getting better, getting healthier, you know, as we get into the into the fourth quarter here? And, and obviously, you know, you have this huge overhang with fiscal stimulus or um, is Congress going to going to be able to work this out in time to include it in a C.R.? Or not? I
1: mean, that's a very much an open no question. Adam. No one knows! No one knows! Trevor, no one knows! Really- I tried every day really I wake hard. up, I tell Lisa, I tell Lisa Bramowitz, I say, I feel like a rerun. I got nothing. Final question for you before I let you go. And you've been so generous with your time. Trevor Hanger uh, with Forbes Tate Partners. Uh, the politicization of the vaccination process. I mean, no matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, th- there's no escaping that this whole entire thing has become politicized. If you're a Democrat, you blame Republicans for the politicization. If you're a Republican, you're blaming Democrats for the politicization. But the politicization of the vaccination process. Say that three times fast. What does it mean (laughs) for uh, the markets?
2: So, yeah, I think it's an important question. I think the statement put out today by leading drug manufacturers is, Something that'll put some, you know, investors at ease, right? To make sure that, that there is no, uh, you know, there is no nefarious or, or, um, you know, or, or untoward decision making going on around what gets approved and when. Uh, you know, from an investor standpoint, I think it's important for um, for investors to see that there continues to be progress being made, uh, you know, just because you get a vaccine improve, approved on November one, I mean, that obviously has massive electoral implications potentially. Um, but that doesn't get the vaccine, you know, into uh, you know circulation on, yeah. on November one, right? And that uh, and so that's think- really
1: going to be the the huge thing. I have to I have to jump. But Trevor, uh, thanks so much. Would you come back on the show? You're gonna you're gonna come back on? I'd love to. All right, anytime. anytime. Yeah, thank you so much. That's Trevor Hanger. He is, of course, with Forbes Tate Partners. He is uh, a strategic advisor there uh, in Washington, D.C., and he has a a, a daily note uh, that, that chronicles all things. Uh, so, yeah, Trevor Hanger, he'll be back on. Coming up. We go back to geopolitics. It's an all-star panel. David Sefiori joins us, the former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. What's going on with Kosovo? And Adam Goodman, Republican media strategist, the Republican media strategist, dare I say. Uh, that's what's next on Bloomberg 99.1.
0: On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: President Trump gets tough on China again—an escalation in his rhetoric. What does it mean for the policy? What does it mean for the economy? Plus, fiscal stimulus. Will there be fiscal stimulus? Uh, Leader McConnell says they're going to vote on a skinny bill as early as next week. What does Speaker Pelosi have to say about that? She spoke exclusively to our David Weston. And 2020, Biden goes green—or does he? Does he go green? He's going to release an energy plan tomorrow. I'll give you a preview. David Weston spoke to Speaker Pelosi about the stimulus. Leader McConnell saying there's going to be a skinny deal, a skinny deal coming up as early as next week. They're going to vote on it. Ah, it'll be interesting. I'm going to talk about the stimulus coming up. But we begin tonight with the big story, the big geopolitical story. And that is President Trump escalating his rhetoric and his policy on China. Yesterday, on a holiday, the president, speaking at the White House, offered some tough talk about what he's calling potentially, quote, decoupling of the world's two largest economies. Take a listen to President Trump at the White House yesterday. Here he is.
4: So when you mention the word decouple, it's, uh, it's an interesting word. Uh-huh. So we lose billions of dollars. And if we didn't do business with them, we would lose billions of dollars. It's called decoupling, so you'll start thinking about it. If Biden wins, China wins, because China will own this country. If Biden wins, China will own this country, and hopefully you're not going to be able to find that out. It's the most important election in our history, right now.
1: That was President Trump speaking at the White House yesterday, and then... Earlier this morning in conversations with senior administration officials, the Trump administration is telling me that they've banned imports from three companies in the Xinjiang region of China over Beijing's alleged repression of the Uyghur Muslim minority group. And it plans to add curbs on six more firms and target cotton, textiles, tomatoes, the chips and in those inexpensive laptops that every all the schools are using. And they're using what's known as a withholding release order, a WRO, a WRO, uh, and they're citing the uh, the abuse of the Uyghurs as as justification for this. So that's the lay of the land as we enter into this shortened week. And I welcome to the program uh, two all-stars. David Tafuri, who is a former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor, and he's been all over the world. He's consulted with foreign governments and and knows geopolitics better than anyone in this town. And Adam Goodman, a Republican media strategist, columnist, and a partner at Ballard Partners, which is based in Washington, D.C. David it felt that over the holiday weekend, typically in an election year, the geopolitics would take a back seat. But this is an election unlike any other, and China is front and center.
3: I agree. You wrote a great article about this and what President Trump has done. It's very interesting because President Trump's views on the economic dispute with China have now coincided with generally America's views on the human rights violations by China, in particular, the detention of Uyghurs in China. And he's now utilizing some things in the law that allow him to punish Chinese companies and Chinese officials who are in any way involved with the detention of the Uyghurs. The Uyghur situation is abominable, as you know. Uh, There's lots of reporting on this. But it's great that President Trump is focusing on it. Of course, there's some politics involved. President Trump wants to make China an issue. He thinks it's a winning issue for him in November because he has taken a tough stance on China. Although I would note that he hasn't really identified how the Biden approach to China would be any different. And I would also note that Biden and Biden's team announced two weeks ago they believe China's treatment of the Uyghurs is genocide. So I imagine the Biden administration, if Biden won, would take a similar stance on these issues.
1: It is when, when words like that are, are thrown around, I mean it it they're not thrown around. I mean they're they're carefully chosen and so it is it, it does feel like a significant escalation. Adam Goodman, come in here. Uh because typically geopolitics does take a back seat, but in this cycle China is front and center.
6: Well, you know, you you know the expression, the elephant in the room with China, of course it's the panda in the room. Just what I just have to throw it out there. Um <laughs> what what we've got what we really have here. Uh, is the first American president? I think David, you know, would agree with at least some of this. He's the first American president has really put it to the, the Chinese uh, government. Uh, obviously, a lot of it's economic, but you know, we are a civilization and economy that uh, operates in quarters called three-month quarters. They operate in twenty-five-year, you know, quarter centuries, and so this is the first time anyone and american leadership has really fully called them on the carpet on a number of fronts and said we're not going to put up with this anymore and you know you're looking at the coupling you're looking at the best divest- divestiture movements uh that are uh starting to, to gain scheme uh, steam rather especially in american colleges and universities yep. um and all the abandoned imports but the question for all of us is is it was it is it okay for us to continue down the path of letting Frankly, the Chinese uh, government and leadership just kind of walk all over us, or do we have to call them on it? And in a way, the Uyghurs—glad David brought that into play. That's a, another important element of all this. So it's not just about well, what do the farmers have to freak out about in the Midwest this week that we may be putting yeah.
1: on the uh, the no, band market? No, this is so right? smart, Adam. This is yeah. bigger. It's so much bigger. I mean, it's so much bigger. And I think the you know in the conversation here in the Beltway with the, the in the Beltway media, I think. Is, is expanding that conversation. But you're so spot on because it really was such small ball, it felt like, for months, uh, especially about a year and a half ago, when that was really the how the U.S.-China relations were being framed. But, uh, you know, uh, David, Adam makes a, a, a fascinating point in the sense of uh, that w- the actions that the administration took today with the withholding release orders, WROs, through the Department of Homeland Security, Ken Cuccinelli's shop over there. Uh, you know, it... it it essentially is going to touch everything from hollywood hair products to the the chips in students uh, inexpensive laptops, which is already a shortage, on and I, I note the shortage, and then textiles and 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 designer duds, you know, the top name brands that get 80% of China's exports come from the Xinjiang region, and and 30% of U.S. imports uh, come for uh, for clothing come from China. So how do you, in a global economy, David Sepuri, with all of your world travels and all of your geopolitical knowledge, how do you make sure that if the U.S. tries to tries to you know implement this, they just don't go to, the Communist Party just doesn't go to another back channel, say, I don't know, through South America or Latin America to get around the rules. Or, you know, if there is divestitures that they don't, you know, go to the Hong Kong market or the Singapore market. How do we make sure of that?
3: Well, I'm sure China is going to try to do that, but we're talking about massive amounts of imports, and it would be impossible for it to continue at that rate if the Trump administration follows through and enforces these decisions. So what China is also going to have to do is find new markets for some of these products. And, of course, China is likely to retaliate against the United States and against uh, companies in the U.S. that sell American products into China. That will be probably their main response. But this is a wake-up call for American companies who've done business in the area where the Uyghurs are located. And you'll note another thing that's been in the news is this Disney film Mulan. Which oh, we're going to talk about that. Let's actually, I'm
1: going to I'm going to hold you right there because we're going to talk about Mulan. That is very much on my radar. I went and saw Tenet, David. I saw Tenet, which I don't understand. I went back to the movies. I had my mask. I had to Google it for about a half hour after I saw it because I truly do not. Understand that movie, but it's great. I'll see anything Nolan makes. I'm Kevin Cirilli. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: So I went back to the movie theaters over uh, the weekend, holiday weekend. I saw Tenet, Christopher Nolan, and I didn't understand any of it. Loved it. Great movie. (laughs) Didn't understand any of it. I mean I still don't. But I watched a bunch of YouTube videos on it. And Christopher Nolan, I mean to be a fly on the wall in Christopher Nolan's brain. It would be remarkable. It would be remarkable. My name is Kevin Ceruley. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, you wear the mask in the uh in the movie theater. It's like every other other seat. Uh so I mean it's a big theater. So you, I didn't feel you know, it's, I was I was keeping with Virginia's laws like I didn't you know break any rules. David Tafuri's on former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor Adam Goodman Republican media strategist columnist and partner columnist and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington. David, have you been back to the movies?
3: I have not I, and I probably need to go soon because I think I've watched everything on Netflix, <laughs> but I have not I've been here.
1: I started away with uh, Hilary Swank on uh, on Netflix. It's it's pretty interesting, you know. I love space stuff. Adam, are you going back to the movies? Or are you saying eh, not yet, not yet?
6: Well, I'm with David, I mean, I I, I kind of ran out of things to to watch on Netflix. <laughs> so I went back and watched them again. So I went through the whole uh, series of The Office again, the whole oh, you know eleven show. seasons, whatever it was. It was fantastic. Oh my god, Better than I would
1: do time, that. Right? I would do that even if there wasn't a pandemic. Uh, so Tenet <laughs> made, I want to go back to this Mulan thing. Tenet made, uh, how much money? Here it is. I have it in front of me on my Bloomberg terminal. Uh, it's, it's grossed over 100, more than $125 million in international markets, including $30 million in, uh, in China, uh, and it cost a reported two hundred million. So it grossed $20 million here in America, which is not that good. So a lot of folks are uh, a little bit uneasy. But Mulan is, is thrust into controversy. Tell us why Mulan, Disney Plus's Mulan, is, is thrust into controversy, David Tefiori.
3: So Mulan was filmed in the area of China where the Uyghurs are located and where they've been put into detention camps. Uh, it's hard to imagine that the makers of the film didn't realize it when they made the film, and they should have seen this as a potential problem. But what's even more astounding, and this is what's cited in a lot of the news articles, is the credits in the movie actually give thanks to the local authorities in this area for letting them film there. It's the same local authorities that are responsible for putting some people into these detention camps, or, you know, shepherding them into the detention camps. So it's pretty astounding for disney the maker of the movie
1: it is really remarkable in on on this uh adam goodman i mean for, for... well you know
3: they say
6: you know how they say life imitates art i mean you know this is this is just too close an analogy to ignore but it's interesting that you bring up the words move on because there's another major story right now having to do with MoveOn.org, which i think you probably took saw kind of
1: I'm saying Mulan, line, yeah, not move on, Mulan. <laughs> but go ahead, oh, but I hear on. you. <laughs> yes, I'm, going,
6: I'm going right to move on. Okay, uh, got it, got it. And, and I think it's worthy of talking about because move on uh, just called for uh, massive public unrest if things don't go their way in this election in the fall. They're talking about occupying space, shutting things down for weeks if necessary. Uh, they're talking about you know basically doing whatever is necessary to disrupt the country uh, if they don't like what's about to come down. So that may not be the Mulan you're talking about uh, in the movies, but this is a real-life horror film I think that we may be uh, bearing witness to not long from today.
1: Well, happy post Labor Day weekend to you too, Adam Goodman. All right, let's move on to fiscal. <laughs> let's move on to fiscal stimulus because there appears to be somewhat of a breakthrough, maybe, uh, in what Leader McConnell is having to say about the uh, the fiscal stimulus. And they unveiled today their slimmed down coronavirus uh, fiscal stimulus bill. Uh, and here's what Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Here's Speaker Pelosi, what she told my colleague David Weston. Here it is.
0: What they have is so meager uh, that it insults the intelligence of the American people, does not solve the problem. And it is not again. We know that we have to compromise. We know we have to negotiate in order to reach an agreement. We all want an agreement. Make no mistake about that. But get serious. Get real Mitch McConnell.
1: So she's saying get serious, get real. Adam Goodman, I mean, the Republican bill features some aspects of the trillion-dollar proposal that they put forth a month ago, and it's expected, though, to cost between $500 billion and $700 billion. Is that, is that the, the most that, that Leader McConnell can get to without having to give up and have some Republicans break from the ranks? I mean, that's still a lot of money.
6: Isn't it amazing that when you say 500 to $700 billion, I it sounds small? I if know. you don't talk in trillions, it doesn't really count. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, just like all of us, we've kind of taken on COVID-19 on the fly. We never didn't have a textbook on this. We didn't kind of know exactly the, the best steps to take. We just knew the steps we felt we had to take when we had to take them. This is not a small bill that uh, McConnell's talking about. I know that Speaker Pelosi is complaining about it. But, you know, you're talking about, you know, $300 billion in uh, federal aid. You're talking about three hundred more a week and unemployment benefits and PPE. And this isn't the end of the line. This is just the next installment. As we start to figure out how to fully reactivate an economy that was operating on all cylinders not all that long ago. So I think this is a story to be continued. Uh, And I don't think in terms of the election, uh, this is going to be as, as important an ingredient in voters' minds as other things that have now hit the front burner.
1: Uh, David, weigh in on that on that stimulus fight, which could get a vote as early as this week or next week for the for the Republican version in the Senate.
3: Yeah, it could get a vote, but it sounds like the bill is dead on arrival. <laughs> it's not even clear that McConnell's going to be able to get Republicans in the his caucus to support it and get to fifty one votes. It'll never get to sixty votes that it needs to uh, to not be stopped by the Democrats, and it's really small compared to what the Democrats in the House passed. You know, people are calling it the skinny stimulus. Schumer is calling it emaciated. So it's it's not going to pass. I guess it's perhaps going to move the dialogue further. What's really confusing to me is you would think the Republicans would want to step up and have a much larger bill because people are suffering so much due to the pandemic going –
1: Yeah, we're going to have to leave it there. More next. uh, We'll come back more. Sorry, you cut out. This is Kevin Cirillo. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: They're worried if there's going to be a shortage on freezers because they're prepping for hundreds of millions of vaccines in the marketplace, uh, hopefully by The first quarter of next year But you need to Where do you put a vaccine? You put a vaccine in a freezer So First it was the tests Then it was the masks And the PPE Remember all that? Well now It's the freezers The syringes The glass cases And the like That's where we're at. Plus, a red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. According to Stat News, AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine study has been put on hold due to suspected adverse reaction in participant in the U.K. Congressman Max Rose is a Democrat from New York City. And he is also a member of the uh, House Committee on Homeland Security, the subcommittee on emergency preparedness, response and recovery. Congressman, you know, it seems like this vaccination process has been politicized. I know I know, you know, Democrats blame Republicans, Republicans blame Democrats. But how do we get to a place where we trust that there's a vaccine? We celebrate the science and we put this pandemic behind us.
7: Kevin, thanks for having me, man. Yeah. I'm sorry you couldn't get Michael Cohen on. Um,
1: <laughs>
7: <laughs>
1: Always, you know, I was here. Though I, I was so proud of that intro, and then bam, the congressman brings me right back down to earth. Maybe Go ahead.
2: Time, Maybe next time, but I'll for I'll settle for second place.
7: Look, this, everything is getting politicized today, and it's ridiculous. The president of the United States used a, a terminology very early on in COVID, that has stuck with me. He said, this is a moment of war. It's a moment of total war, in fact. Well, if that is the case, which I believe it is, then we don't politicize war. In fact, what we have in war is solidarity, a strategy, and a full allocation of resources. Uh, Nothing seems to be immune from politics today. Now, here's what we should be doing when it comes to this pandemic. And it's really three things and three things, most especially. One, we've got to safely but nonetheless robustly race to this vaccine, treating it like the Apollo Project of our day. The second is is that we have got to make sure that there's a full and adequate availability of PPE and other critical resources so that we can also start to open up Um, open this economy up. I'm particularly thinking about our our restaurants. And then lastly, it, it is testing. Okay? We can't think about it this way. Everyone's saying we're guaranteed to get a vaccine. We're going to get a vaccine. They're just thinking about when. You can't take guarantees in this day and age. We can test our way out of this crisis as well. If you're doing something like 50 million tests a day, which is merely a matter of technology and resource allocation, then you can quickly identify new cases and isolate them. The, all these things are within the realm of possibility. Why is it that the MBA is thinking up new ways to test people? It should be our major cities, our major states, and most especially the federal government. We shouldn't be reducing the number of tests.
4: I want For to go
7: of this we should be increasing them.
1: Congressman Max Rose is on the line. He's a Democrat from New York. He knows a thing or two about the military. He served in the US Army as a platoon leader in the war in Afghanistan and he was awarded a bronze star and a purple heart. I want to go to the restaurants in New York City cuz you know I mean you New Yorkers up there in the in the Big Apple are having a debate over these restaurants. Where do you stand in this debate and catch us up to speed because it's it's really really interesting.
7: Yeah, now look the ball it, you would say under normal circumstances in a place like New York City that the ball is in the mayor's court. It's not. This mayor at this point needs to be considered irrelevant. He's the worst mayor in the history of this great country. So the ball is really in the governor's court, okay? And the governor needs to, as quickly as possible, circumvent the mayor and get our restaurants in New York City open, albeit at a reduced capacity, open for indoor dining. Everyone says this is a matter of science. This is a matter of science. Look at the numbers. Indoor dining is open on Long Island. Indoor dining is open in Westchester. Indoor dining is open virtually the rest of the country. I don't nation. understand the justification.
1: What is the, what is the justification? Because if kids are going back to school, or if, I, I don't, I, I it's truly unbelievable. don't understand. You can send your six-year-old to elementary school, but you can't sit inside
7: and eat chicken parm. Why? I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, uh, at this point, I am baffled. I am mystified because our restaurants are on the brink of uh, of death, of death. And this is not just the restaurant owners, as important as, uh, as they are. It's the people who are working for them too. We have got to get. Them open, this makes zero sense. No wonder people hate our politics. There's zero. No wonder people
1: are leaving New York City. To be honest, I mean, if you can't even go yeah, out and get chicken palm, I'm not even trying to be funny. Like it, no, it's no, no, crazy.
7: A hundred, a hundred percent, a hundred
1: percent. New York City's competitive
7: advantage is the fact that people want to be there. You know, and that's what attracts businesses. That's that's what attracts tourism. It's that dynamism, and we're we are killing it. All New York City is asking for is to be treated like the rest of the state. You know, when I go down to Washington, D.C., they have higher COVID numbers than New York City, and they have indoor dining.
4: We do. If, if,
7: if people are in a particularly vulnerable population or if they're afraid or whatever it might be, God bless you. No one's forcing you to go out to a restaurant.
4: <laughs> but mean,
7: come, come November— People aren't going to want to do indoor dining anymore. Certainly not the numbers that we're seeing right now. These restaurants make their money in the late fall. We Doesn't. need to get this done. You've got to look at the pending economic destruction.
1: And I know this the feels workers the, and the owners. This feels like small, but even like where I go every day to get my cup of coffee, the the the, the mayor here is making everyone the, the server has to get the coffee i can't and i know it's small ball, but i'm thinking to myself if more people are touching my cup of coffee in the morning isn't that mean more people could potentially spread the germs like i i just feel like there's all this faulty logic it gets in my head and then i overthink it and then i move on because i have my coffee i want to move right. on to china because i know because sure. you're someone who congressman rose you're you're very much in in all of these important conversations what how would it, how do you think a Biden administration would deal with China, would deal with the Communist Party of China?
7: Well, uh, well I'll tell you what I think they should be doing and yeah. what I will be advocating for. You cannot treat China as if it is a friend. And you certainly can't assume that China's going to do the right thing. Everyone else has been practicing free trade, at least certainly the United States of America has. China has been practicing a neo-mercantilist policies where it's subsidizing its state-owned businesses. It's uh, artificially lowering its currency values and so on and so forth, giving itself unfair advantage, killing our workers in the process. It's actively stealing our IP, and it is actively actively trying to steal our vaccine technology, but in order to treat, realistically, to treat China as if it is not a friend, not necessarily an enemy, but not a friend, you have to build alliances. And we we have to rebuild those alliances, both in East Asia, Southeast Asia, as well as in Europe. All of those alliances are critical, so you can build a global system that then China needs to be a part of. But we can't just turn a blind eye any longer to what China is doing. What the problem with the Democratic Party is, though, is the Democratic Party, just its foreign policy basically rests right now and say, well, I'm going to do the opposite of what Donald Trump is doing. Donald Trump wants to leave Afghanistan, suddenly Democrats want to stay in Afghanistan. He wants to leave Syria, suddenly Democrats want to stay there. He he wants to be tough on China with tariffs. Now the Democrats hate all tariffs. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I don't want to see us to go back to the 90s, go back to the early aughts in terms of our relationship with China. We have to look forward. This is a new day. China is our closest peer competitor. Mm. We have to act like mm. that. Yes, this is a, is a non-zero-sum game, but only to a certain extent. It's mm-hmm. a competition for jobs, for innovation, as well as for economic growth. Yeah. We start acting like it. When America puts its mind to competing, nobody outcompetes us. Because I'll tell you this, we remain the magnet for the best yeah. and the brightest. Congress and we got to bring them on.
1: Congressman Max Rose, come down here, and we'll have some chicken parm. Democrat from New York. Always appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Coming up next, what's on the panel's radar? That's Congressman Max Earth, Democrat from New York. I always enjoy those interviews. I always actually feel like he answers the questions. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg
0: 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
1: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Lots to get through on the 2020 front. Joe Biden. Joe Biden is going to release or announce an energy proposal sometime uh, tomorrow. We'll bring you that. He's got a... Got to navigate this this centrist tension with the democratic socialist tension. Fracking a big issue in Pennsylvania, so that's very much what we're going to be talking about likely tomorrow. But who knows with these breaking news stories? Astra AstraZeneca shares falling on that report that I told you about earlier in the hour of the vaccine trial setback. Reading from the terminal AstraZeneca, U.S.-traded shares declined sharply Tuesday following a report that a study of the British drug makers COVID-19 vaccine had been put on hold. In late trading in New York, shares of AstraZeneca fell as much as 8.3% after Stat reported that the company had paused its coronavirus vaccine trial due to a suspected adverse reaction in a trial participant in the U.K. There's like 130-plus vaccines that are uh, in being researched worldwide. Nine are in development. I guess eight now if AstraZeneca is put on hold. All right. So that's what's up to speed in this half hour. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, what is on the panel's radar. David Tafuri, former Obama campaign foreign policy advisor. Adam Goodman, Republican media strategist, columnist, and partner at Ballard Partners in Washington, DC. All right, Adam. You know, what's on Adam Goodman's radar?
6: The wonderful word, debates. Right? Yeah, same. I can't wait to get to the debates. And so we're we're obviously we're twenty one days out today from the first debate at Case Western Reserve between Joe Biden and the president. Uh, The first major debate, as you know, uh, Kevin, in 2016, in the fall, generated 81 million viewers. My guess is this is going to get close to 100 million. Really? If you have about 100 million viewers uh, tuning into this debate, there are two things, in my opinion, and David might have a totally different opinion on this, that are keeping Joe Biden up at night. One is, that there might be more Kenosha's out there that would continue to put uh, security on the front burner as a major maybe wedge issue in this campaign. But the other one is more personal, and that is, am I going to blow it? He's saying to himself, am I going to blow it in this debate? Uh, You could say that Joe Biden has a lot of strengths. One of them, uh, by uh, by a look at his history, uh, that is not on that list, is debating. And for 90 minutes without a break, he's going to have to go up against the president, not once, but three times. Uh, that's what I'm looking forward to as the polls in all of the battleground states are starting to move closer and closer to margin of error, uh, which is what the only polls that really count as we see, uh, Joe Biden up six points, eight points. It doesn't matter. He's only, uh, he's margin of error in, uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Michigan, uh, and that keeps him up at night when he thinks about the debates and maybe those are the moments. As much as and I've been in this game a long time, as much as you plan for them, as much as you coach the principal for them, there is that wonderful thing called live, which you can't yeah. completely control. And I think that's the thing that is most bedeviling Joe Biden uh, today, tonight, tomorrow, and up until the first debate on set on the twenty seventh of September
1: it uh it, it it the debates are going to be absolutely fascinating Chris Wallace of Fox News has the first one, so it will be remarkable uh just to see what happens and the politicking and the posturing that goes on I mean you know i I'm such a nerd, I hope they talk to some policy that's a great one. I mean the debates are going to be so <laughs> crucial and there's a poll out of Florida today that has it uh, a dead heat neck and neck I think it's like one or two percentage points spread i mean it's it's totally uh totally locked in Florida. So the all-important state, the swing state of Florida. All right, so David Tafuri, what is on your radar? Well, first of
3: all, I can say I agree. I think the debates are going to be fascinating. I can't wait till they happen. I think Biden is probably less nervous than Adam thinks about the debates because he's experienced. doesn't mean there aren't you know some pitfalls for him. But Trump should be nervous, too. He's down. So a lot more rides on the debates for President Trump. The thing that's on my mind is what came out last week, sticking with foreign policy. President Trump announced this treaty or warming of relations between Serbia and Kosovo. It's a good thing that the Trump administration focused on this. You remember that they fought a war. There was a genocide by Serbia against Kosovars. We had to get involved there. So it's a positive that there is a warming of relations. But... If you look behind the announcement, which created a lot of potentially positive publicity for President Trump, there's really not much there. The two sides didn't even sign a unified statement, and the things that they agreed to do were things that they'd already previously agreed to do. So you have to wonder, was this another publicity stunt by President Trump to try and show something in terms of foreign policy accomplishments as we get closer to November?
1: Well, do you think that they're even going to enforce it if Biden wins? I mean is there any is there any incentive for either side and not just that deal but also the Israel one as well with UAE
3: Yeah I think the Israel part of both deals uh is you know potentially problematic particularly with the Kosovo uh, Serbia deal because both country agreed countries agreed to put their embassies in Jerusalem, which is a hot-button figure, and something that probably the Biden administration doesn't necessarily support, not because they don't support Jerusalem and Israel, but they know that this is something that is a hot-button issue for Palestinians, and the goal is really to get the Israelis and Palestinians back together on a a dialogue about peace, and that can only happen if there's compromise by both sides. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, well, we'll I mean, that's a good... uh... That's a good, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, Here's what's on my radar, and I don't think it's gotten nearly, in any other pre-pandemic world, this would have been the big story of the summer. The fires in California, um, it is really, really, really Crazy. And I'm reading from the AP. Helicopters flew through dense smoke Tuesday to rescue scores more people from wildfires as wind fanned flames kept chewing through a bone dry California after scorching Labor Day weekend. That saw a dramatic airlift of more than 200, more than 200 people in California were helicoptered out. Folks, think about that. Rescue choppers then pulled another 164 people from the Sierra National Forest through the morning. And we're working to rescue 17 others, just according to Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who had the, the, the pilots had to wear night vision goggles to find a place to land because of all the smokes. Think of how staggering this is. They California has already set the record with nearly 2.3 million acres burned this year. More than 2.3 million acres burned this year. And the worst part of the wildfire season Is just beginning. The wildfires out in California, folks, I mean, it is really, really remarkable. That's on my radar, uh, and it's just devastating what's what's happening out there in in California with these wildfires. 2.3 million acres, and the worst of the wildfire season hasn't even begun. Many are fearing this could be the worst wildfire season for California uh, that they've seen, that they've seen. And they're rescuing—it's just— Really, really, really uh, intense tragedy. Uh, quickly, I've got to ask the panel their favorite Christopher Nolan film, and we have 60 seconds, so you got to go quick. Adam, what's your favorite Christopher Nolan flick?
6: Favorite Christopher Nolan flick. I am so consumed with the movie called The Re-election of Donald Trump. <laughs>
1: okay. I have
6: very little room to critique right. others' movies, but I can All tell right. you his movies going very well.
1: All right. And uh, David, your favorite Nolan flick?
3: What? Did he do
1: Joker? Yes, he did the Joker. Yes. No, he did. There you have it. Well, he did the trilogy of Batman, which is the best Batman trilogy. Okay, so not the right crowd. I get it. Okay, mine is Interstellar. Interstellar is one of my all-time, if not my all-time favorite movie. So I think Interstellar is great. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. I saw it like five times in IMAX. It was so good. Interstellar took me to the stars. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. Huge space nerd. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
7: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data
0: directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com slash
6: enterprise data to learn more.